Meditations with Ryan Slomak. Hello and welcome to episode two. It's been 14 whole days since the Ben T. Matchstick and Pete Talbot interview. Seems like a lifetime, but as I rattle my brain for what really took place, it took 30 some odd years for episode one. So I think the 14-day cycle is probably more reasonable than waiting until, you know, 2053 for your next episode. We're not even sure if computers will exist at that point. What are podcasts? Who knows? Today we're going to jump into an interview with Nick Parisi, who is the president of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. I'm a huge Rod Serling fan, and if that name doesn't resonate with you, he's most famous for being the creator of the Twilight Zone, uh, the person who would give you information at the beginning and end of every episode to kind of bring together the morality tales that were discussed in the show. He wrote a tremendous amount of those Twilight Zone episodes, but also is known for being one of the most important uh, television playwrights in the 1950s when TV is still sort of figuring out what it's going to become. Nick Parisi is the president of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. He's the writer of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. He's a former heavy metal singer, or I'll say a heavy metal singer that we're still waiting for that number one hit from. He's a lot of things and a fascinating person to chat with. So please join us in conversation. Awesome. So Nick, I really want to, I want to thank you for, for being on the show. Uh, when I was doing this research, I was, you know, going through and looking at other places that you've been. And when I'm interviewing somebody who's been on Inside Edition and then has been interviewed by Gilbert Godfrey, you know, the voice of Iago from Aladdin, and then comes to Meditations with Ryan Slomak, it's, I, I feel like I've reached a whole new level of success. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm not so sure how true that is, but but, but as far as my credentials go, but but I appreciate that. Thanks. It's an extra feather in your cap, right? Um, so I, you know, as we're, I, I, I wanted you on the show just because I'm a huge Rod Serling fanatic. You're a huge Rod Serling fanatic. You've written a phenomenal book. You're involved in all these different charity organizations. Um, but I wanted to start things off just kind of talking about you because I think that you're also an interesting character. Uh, and as I was doing some research on you, there's this sort of theme of music and service that seems to be in your sort of background. Uh, and I want to sort of kind of talk about music to begin with. Um, you were, uh, what is it? Is it Arioc was the band that you were playing in? Arioc. Arioc. So 1989, you guys release a demo. And then 1990, you release a, a full length called Between Light and Shadow. And you're making awesome metal music. What's your sort of history with music? Were you interested in being a rock star? Uh, I was supposed to be a rock star, to be real, to be real honest with you. That's that's where my my fate was, and I don't know what happened. Something got off track, but as as as, as tends to happen, you know. But um, but yeah, no. From the time I was fourteen years old, I I started as a bass player, and from the time I picked up the bass, I mean, that was really I bass and singing. I mean, I I started as a bass player, and then by the time eighty eight, eighty nine came around. Um, the band I was in, Ariac at the time, we decided let's get an another bass player and just let you sing, and that was uh, that was kind of a watershed moment for me because I realized, yeah, you know, I, I love playing bass, but really singing and being a front man was really my my thing, you know. So, so from that point forward, I mean, I've been in a dozen bands and you know done lots and lots of shows and lots and lots of things, but uh, but nothing really ever you know ever panned out you know on the you know success wise at least you know in terms of you know we had some minor success here and there along the way as as people do but but nothing major and uh yeah so music is still my you know my big love i still play i still play bass i still sing i i'm still involved in some things but but i haven't played live i haven't done a live show in almost five years now so i'm kind of out of the out of the picture at this point oh it's a bummer well i can tell you that uh your uh, Between Light and Shadow album was my my soundtrack as I was doing all this research, which was really fun. Um, and you've got some other stuff too. The Sonic Revolution, Power Failure, it was at 2006. There's an album on Spotify, which is pretty cool. Um, but I, I, yeah. I, I all... Sorry, yeah, I'm going to cut you off. That's right. Yeah, the Sonic Revolution was kind of my my last, my final original band that I was a part of. And I'm actually very proud of the stuff that we did. We did, we did four CDs that... Um, should be available on Spotify and other other online sources and power failure you mentioned yeah that's that's my favorite of anything I really ever did and and that was kind of you know it's 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 
I don't know how to really say it at this point, but I, I was really, really proud of Power, Power Failure. I kind of felt like it was the best I could do, and it still went nowhere. So, so that was a, a clue to me to say, you know what, you know, if this is the best I can do, and I took my last shot, and that was it. And so, I, I really that that was a, a clue to say, you know, maybe I should hang this up. Well, hopefully, uh, this interview will encourage you to grow your hair out and get back on stage sometime soon, right? <laughs> Uh, and th- and then additionally, you uh, you've spent your career working in uh, supporting veterans, which is which is really cool. Uh, if I understand correctly, you work for a law firm, uh, and you are uh, uh, what am I trying to say? You're somebody who is ensuring that veterans are able to get the resources that they need. Yeah, that's close. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I um, I'm the I work for a law firm, and the Department of Veterans Affairs has a system where you don't have to be an attorney to represent veterans in their claims. So, so these are service-connected compensation claims. So people who have an injury in service, develop a disability in service, and then later are entitled to compensation for it, um, sometimes it ain't so easy to get, the, to get those benefits. So they come to people like me or into attorneys or veteran service officers, and, and I, I try to help them get those benefits. So I'm what the VA calls an agent. I'm an accredited agent, and I, you know, I have to take a test and become accredited, and, and you know, I have to do my, my CLEs just like an attorney would do and everything. But, but yeah, I've been doing it for about a dozen years now. And it's good work because the the VA system, like any governmental bureaucracy, it's it's um, you know it could be a maze to get through it, and 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 it's not easy for somebody to try to do it on their own. So I, I help these guys through men and women uh, through the system, and uh, and sometimes you know more often than not we're successful, and it's, it feels good to be able to do that and get get people just you know just what they're entitled to you know from the from the system. That's awesome. And I think especially with, you know, Rod Serling's war history and things like that, it's interesting how your experience working with these things, I'm sure kind of keeps that uh, just that spirit alive of understanding that we need to understand these people's trauma. And we need to understand that, like, when you come back from war, you're a different person, uh, you know, more often than not. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, we're still creating more and more of these people every day. You know, I mean, it'd be, uh, you know, I'm sure Rod would would uh, look forward to a time when uh, there weren't any more veterans, you know, there weren't any more wars, you know. Um, But as long as they are in reality, yeah, when they come back, um, we have to take care of the, you know, not just the physical uh, disabilities, but the mental disabilities and PTSD is just, um, it's a, it's a fact of life for these people. They just, um, it's almost unavoidable, uh, when you're in combat or even when you're not in combat, you know, a lot of the, you know, one of the, um, nice things that the VA did along the line was they changed the definition of what you can use to claim PTSD from combat to even the fear of combat. So if you're in a situation where you're fearing for your life every day, but you're not necessarily on the front lines, uh, that can cause PTSD. I mean, someone had some common sense and said, yeah, so so that's one of the things that they did. So so people that come back, they come back scarred and uh, from from various things, again, not just from combat. Awesome. Well, thanks for thanks for your work and thanks for uh, the perspective on that. Let's uh, we'll, we'll sort of shift gears and talk about uh, the veteran of the day, one Mr. Uh, Rod Serling. Uh, I'm curious. You know, everybody sort of has their their Rod Serling or Twilight Zone or Night Gallery sort of origin story. For me, I you know I was born in Syracuse, New York, the same town that Rod Serling was born in. I lived in Binghamton, and you can't go anywhere without finding some piece of uh, Rod Serling like memorabilia around there. And the Twilight Zone was uh, just this imperative. Part of my understanding of storytelling. I'm curious about for you, like how did you discover Rod Serling and, and develop an appreciation for his work? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about this recently because I always say that when I talk to people, it seems that more often than not, they can remember the the first Twilight Zone episode that they saw. And I've always said, I can't remember the first Twilight Zone episode I saw. There's maybe a handful that I could narrow it down to, but they're all kind of a blur. I can't say, oh yeah, I saw this episode and that did it. But but uh, so when I was, you know, about 10 years old, 1979, 1980, 81, I, you know, was watching Twilight Zone and I was a kid on, on WPIX Channel 11 here in, in, on Long Island. And I was just mesmerized by the show from the get go from the first time I saw it. There was just something about it. There were lots of things about it that drew me in and um, and, you know, just mesmerized me, really. But what I was saying was I, I was just thinking about this recently because it occurred to me that. I can remember watching Night Gallery, watching the Night Gallery pilot movie 
probably when I was eight years old, because I, I was seven or eight years old on TV. It was one of the Channel Nine million dollar movies. And I watched it with my dad. My dad died when I was eight. So so I had to have been seven to eight years old. And so that had to be before Twilight Zone. So it just occurred to me this just recently that I probably experienced Night Gallery before the Twilight Zone. And uh, so I do remember watching that. And I just remember it being cool. I mean, I mean, I remember that. I don't remember, you know, my reaction to it, other than this is pretty cool. Um, so, you know, so, yeah. So but Twilight Zone is the one that that drew me into the Rod Serling world. And and I've you know, told this story before. It's just that, yeah, when I was 10 or 11, I got into Twilight Zone. And then when I was 12, Mark Zickery's Twilight Zone Companion was published. And that just blew the doors off of everything. So as soon as I got that book, it was like, you know, I had the key to the kingdom. And and now I was a full-blown fanatic for, for Twilight Zone and Rod Serling. And it just kind of developed from there. That's awesome. And it's it, I think the addict thing is is spot on because there's it's it's interesting how once you once you sort of peel back the layer of the Twilight Zone and then you peel back the layer of Rod Serling, you realize there's just this infinite amount of information to to pull back because he was so prolific uh, that people are always discovering new things that he did. I mean, they what what is it uh, about 250 scripts he wrote in his lifetime? About 250 scripts that were produced. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of material on top of all the things that weren't produced. Yeah, exactly. And and when you consider the relatively short span of time, it makes it even more amazing. I mean, this is all basically in a 25 or really even a 23 year period that he wrote all of these scripts. So it's it's really an amazing record of productivity. Yeah, it's awesome. He uh Let's let's talk about his his history a little bit. So he's born in 1924, right? In 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 Syracuse, New York. Family moves to Binghamton. He grows up in Binghamton, graduates from Binghamton High School, and instantly enlists to go to war. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, the day after high school, he went down and, and enlisted. That was it. And he even try, he even thought about dropping out of high school to to enlist early. And one of his teachers talked him out of it. Uh, and he said, "Yeah, I'll, all right, I'll wait till after I graduate." And and from the time he enlisted, he had this idea that he wanted to be a paratrooper. He just he just got it into his head somehow. I think, you know, and, and this is you know, going based on all the information I have that, you know, part of it was was, you know, he was a little guy. Rob, Rob was maybe five, five. And I he was a kind of a daredevil. And I think he was just attracted to the idea of jumping out of airplanes. He thought that would be kind of cool and kind of manly. And uh, he was all about, you know, kind of proving his manhood. And um, and so he wanted to become a paratrooper and it wasn't easy, but he did it. He became a paratrooper. And and I like to tell people that this, you know, this isn't something like, you know, you just join and they you say I sign up to be a paratrooper and they say, OK, you're in. You know, he he had to he had to earn his wings. Literally, that's where that phrase came from. Earn your wings. I mean, he had to do the parrot, do the, um, you know, the practice jumps from different different heights and and survive them. And uh, and he earned his wings and became a paratrooper. And he served with the 11th Airborne, 511th parachute infantry regiment that's awesome and he uh you know i mean there's 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 stories about him uh you know uh, uh, just witnessing death everywhere and uh coming really close to to being taken out right he he does he does he like walk up a hill and there's there's an, somebody there with a gun who shoots at him and misses because of his short stature it's believed that it, it sort of flies over his head because they're anticipating somebody larger <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly it, but he, but his, I think it's more uh, almost the not the opposite, but yeah, he he uh, encountered a Japanese soldier in the you know in the jungle basically, and and um, the fact that he was short allowed one of his one of Rod's buddies to shoot over his shoulder and shoot the the Japanese soldier before he was able to pull the trigger, but. Uh, but one of the few times that Rod actually told the story, he said, yeah, you know, he was able to see the gun and he thought he was done. He thought that he, his life was over. And, you know, in that split second that can change everything, uh, one of his comrades was able to take him out. Yeah. Amazing. amazing. So he he comes back from he comes back from war. He's. Uh, I mean, you talk about it in your book, you talk about interviews. He's basically a changed person at that point. He's got PTSD. We don't have language to describe it at that point. It's not in the cultural vernacular. Um, and then he decides to go to Antioch College, uh, you know, to to sort of uh, further explore things that I think, what was it? He originally wanted to be a physical education teacher. 
Like, that was the idea. I mean, I think he when he came back, he was really mixed up. I mean, he he did not know what he wanted to do with his life when he first came back. And and one of the things that I, I discovered researching the book is, is, you know, I knew that he was, you know, that he came back and he, he was he, he always said he was at at, you know, he said it was uh, he was at, he was at his wits end. You know, he came back and he, he was um, he was in bad shape. I knew that. But I never quite knew exactly how bad a shape he was until I discovered his his um the paperwork he filed with antioch college before he went there and he wrote about exactly how bad bad off he was and he was he was uh almost uh he he was um he sh- you know he was a loner uh, to some extent when he came back he didn't want to be around anybody he came back and for at least a couple of months he just didn't want to talk to anybody he didn't want to see anybody he said when his you know when his parents would when, or when his family his dad had died by this point but when his family would tell him you know you need to you need a schooling he would say i've been to school i've done that you know or you need to find a career i i had a career i'm done with that you know uh, he was just he was really at his wit's end and and he just kind of applied to antioch college uh, almost just for the heck of it. I mean, because he, he had applied to Antioch College before he went to war and he was accepted and he could have, you know, he could have gone there, but he didn't. And his brother went there, his older brother Robert went there and he said, all right, you know, I'll, I'll apply again. And he was accepted. And Antioch was just, it was a, it was a godsend for Serling. It was, um, you know, a place where he really could find himself and, uh, and recover uh, from the war. And by this point he had started writing and that was, uh, you know, he, he admitted that he started writing as a form of therapy and he did most of that at Antioch where he was able to just really kind of write it out of his system. Yeah. And he writes for their school new, or their school publication, right? Like, uh, and, and gets his first story published there. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, his first published fiction was a short story in the Antiochian, uh, it was the Antioch college literary magazine. And it was called the good right hand. It was a boxing story. And, you know, so when he came back from war and he went to Antioch, he was writing about his experiences and his experiences were war and boxing because he boxed in the military. He boxed in basic training. Um, He won, you know, 17 fights in a row and then got clobbered in his 18th and uh, said, I think I'm done with this. And, And that was it. But when he came back, you know, he took that dictum of write what you know to heart and he, he wrote, you know, boxing and war. So his first uh, short story was a boxing short story, The Good Right Hand. And it was about really set the tone for a lot of Serling's work uh, going forward because it was about it's told from the point of view of a boxing manager who is remembering a former protege who a boxer who injured his right hand and could no longer box. And it was uh, about, you know, the manager trying to get this guy to, you know, find other things to do with his life. And the boxer eventually decides, I'm not, you know, this is all I was meant to do. And he can, he commits suicide. He kills himself. And that character trope or that character um, type was uh, certainly a, um, you know, a, an archetype and, you know, for, for Mountain McClintock or Requiem for a Heavyweight, it was that type of a character. And the, the that type of character, the obsolete man character, who the character who is past his prime can no longer do what he thinks his function is in society. What do they then do? Was something that Serling revisited over and over and over again uh, throughout his career. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, it. I, I love that term, just obsolete man, and just thinking about him coming back from war, him having this sort of like glorified perspective that I'll be like a physical education teacher and I'll change lives that way. And then all of a sudden his, his entire world is just shattered. He has no foundation. He doesn't know what he wants to do. Um, And that, that theme seems to continue into his life too. Like no matter how much success he experiences with the twilight zone or anything like that, like you read these interviews or you just hear him talk about things and he is his own harshest critic and just always believes that he doesn't have a place in society. Yeah. That's one way to put it. Yeah. He, he was, uh, he absolutely was always so hard on himself. He had his the the highest standards for his own work, and he you know he used to say that you know and I think it is true he say you know well every writer wants to you know every you know the TV writer wants to be a film writer the film writer wants to be a playwright the playwright wants to be a songwriter you know it's just one of those things you, you always you want to be what you aren't and and Rod had a couple of unrealized dreams he wanted to be a Broadway 
playwright. And that was one thing he really wanted to be. And, and he wanted to be a novelist. He really would have loved to have published a novel. And, and during his lifetime, he wasn't really able to achieve either of those goals. And that was one of the things that I think um, weighed on him that he thought, you know, uh, that he wouldn't be remembered and that what he was writing was momentarily adequate, you know, and, you know, to use his phrase and, and that, you know, this would, you know, it would, it would, it would fade away. And, you know, these half hour science fiction shows weren't going to really last long. And, and so, yeah, he, he felt that he had not lived up to his potential, uh, especially when he was in his, you know, in his lowest places, I think he absolutely thought that he did not live up to his potential. Awesome. Well, let's talk about some of the things that he did accomplish, right? So he, he graduates college and then he, he, uh, goes and starts working in radio, um, which is where I think you've described it as like, that's where he picks up his chops and pacing for his, for writing, right? That's where he sort of picks up the speed and the ability to just crank out scripts at like a, a, a fascinating rate. Yeah, absolutely. That radio, uh, especially the type of stuff that he was writing, he was writing every, you know, for WLW in Cincinnati, he was writing, he was writing DJ Patter. He was writing, uh, you know, biographical stuff about local towns. He was right. And then he was writing some uh, fictional, you know, stuff as well. So he had kind of that journalist, uh, the journalist you know scheduling kind of thing where he really had to crank it out day by day every day so so he became i mean i think he already had it in him rod came back from the war and i think he he was always a bundle of energy and he just and, and he just continued through um through when he first started writing for radio so he was yeah he was cranking this stuff out at an incredible pace that's awesome and i want to do a real quick interjection here which is uh if i understand correctly nick you're a huge cincinnati reds fan <laughs> Uh, any any connection there between Rod Serling and the Cincinnati Reds? Yeah, as he flashes his <laughs> uh, his Cincinnati Reds baseball cap. Uh, there is no connection, and I, it's funny how often I get to interject this without you uh, giving me the prompt. I somehow I somehow uh, uh, weave in that I am a Cincinnati Reds fan into some of when I talk to people. Um, there was no connection, but you know it's funny. Friends of mine who after they read the book said, I can't believe Rod Sterling has a Cincinnati connection. Can, is that unbelievable? <laughs> like, cause I know I've been a Reds fan since longer than I've been a, a, a Rod Sterling fan. You know, I've been a Reds fan since I was seven years old. So yeah, it was pretty amazing that Rod had this Cincinnati connection. And, um, and so when I went to Cincinnati, when I went to, well, when I went to Antioch, which is Yellow Springs, Ohio, uh, you know, I was able to indulge in some of, some of my Reds fandom and, you know, there's one particular, you know, Rod was a baseball fan. You know, he was a big baseball fan. And there's one particular show he wrote called Forbidden Area for Playhouse 90. Uh, it, was, it was adapted from a novel. And the opening of that story, it's, it's very briefly, it's about basically about the Rus a Russian, spy, Russian spies who are infiltrating the U.S. military. And at the beginning of the show, they are kind of training this Russian spy on how to be an American. And to tell you, you know, give you a, a taste of what the time was like, baseball was king. So how do you be an American? You have to know baseball. So they were quizzing this guy on baseball. And at the time, it was all Cincinnati Reds baseball. So, so I love that scene at the beginning of Forbidden Area where they're asking him about the, you know, the great Cincinnati Reds at the time, you know, Ted Kluzowski and, and Ernie Lombardi and stuff. And so, yeah, so I got to indulge a little bit of my baseball fandom along with the Sterling fandom at the same time. Well, I love it. And I we we could go through, I think, you know, for anybody who's really interested in the inherent chronology of his writing, they should they should read your book, Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. Um, but you gave me a really nice segue to move on. Uh, because I think that when people think of Rod Serling, uh, you know, they're always like, oh, Twilight Zone, uh, Night Gallery. If they know a little bit more, they think Planet of the Apes. But the the Playhouse 90 and the teleplays uh, and his involvement in the birth of television, I think, is something that is is criminally just criminally underrepresented in the, the just the consciousness of his work. Uh, you know, if you, if you research him, you can find this stuff very easily. But uh, I think for a lot of the listeners, they don't know a whole lot about this. So can you tell us a little bit about the sort of uh, the, the teleplay and the, the, the birth of uh, just the birth of television that he's involved with? Because he, he basically changes the format. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that actually was one of the big, uh, the big reasons I wrote the book, really, was that, uh, you know, I love The Twilight Zone as much as anybody. And, and I think it very rightfully is that first thing that you think of when you think of Rod Serling as a reason for that. And I think it's the greatest television series that was ever produced. Um, but 
at the same time, yeah, it completely overshadows the rest of Rod Stern's career. And the rest of his career is nothing to sneeze at. You know, it's I like to tell people all the time that the first, you know, the first thing I say about Rod Serling for the people who don't know him as well as we do is that Rod Serling was the most prestigious writer in television before the Twilight Zone. You know, so that surprises some people. And they were, oh, we wrote before the Twilight Zone. Yeah, well, he didn't just write before the Twilight Zone. He wrote some of the most acclaimed teleplays in television history up until that point. And uh, the three and one, three consecutive Emmy Awards before the Twilight Zone for Patterns, Reckoning for Heavyweight and the Comedian. Uh, the latter two are from Playhouse 90. And his first, uh, you know, television script was aired, you know, aired 1950 on a show called Stars Over Hollywood. So he was there from the infancy of television. I mean, really, when you're talking about the birth of television, you're talking about late 40s, 1950. And he was right there. He was coming out of radio and right into the birth of television. And to some extent, he was at the right place at the right time because television was new and it was looking for talent. It was looking for people to fill that fill the schedule and he was there with these scripts that a lot of them he had written for radio and now he adapted for television and you know was started sending them out and he went through a long period of 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 rejection i mean he went through about two years of being of everything being rejected but yeah at the beginning of television it was it was the wild west i mean they were making the rules as they went along so rod was one of the guys who was who was crafting the the medium he was he was setting some of the rules and not not consciously. I mean, he was just writing. I mean, he was just writing what, you know, what he thought was was good. And, you know, and so so, uh, you know, he was. Uh, but at the same time, he was. Yeah, he was helping to create this new medium of television. And by the time you get to what is really considered the golden age of live television, 1955, 56, 57, 58, um, he was at the top of his game. So he had honed his craft up until the point where uh where you know we should probably touch on patterns because patterns is just it's you know every time i talk about patterns i have to preface it by saying i'm not i'm not exaggerating or and, and i'm not this isn't hyperbole you know when patterns aired it turned the entire television industry on its ear you know patterns aired uh, in january of 1955 and the day after it aired, the New York Times, Jack Gould, the New York Times said it was the best thing he'd ever seen on television. He said it was the best thing that had ever been on television from a standpoint of writing, directing, acting, performance. It was, you know, the best thing he'd ever seen on television. Now, television was only about five years old at that point. So, you know, so it wasn't a vast, uh, you know, vast history at that point. But Patterns was just a gigantic hit. And, and again, for people today trying to understand this, what you have to understand is back then television, live television, it was like the opening of a Broadway play. It was just the same way that a Broadway play can open, get great reviews and be set for a certain a long time. And the same same sense, you know, you go open a Broadway play and get terrible reviews and be gone in three days. The same could be said of television. Now, it wasn't a broad wasn't an ongoing Broadway play. But when a play like that, it was a play got great reviews the next day you were on top of the of the world and rod sterling went overnight to being the the most sought out television writer uh period you know he his joke was that you know the moment that that show went off the air my phone started ringing and then it never stopped and and that's really how it was so patterns set him up as the king of the as the top of the heap and so from that point forward uh you know his his career trajectory was you know to the moon well and let me yeah, it yeah. was always direct, but it was but it was on its way. <laughs> and and you know, for people who are unfamiliar with uh the you know the golden age of television, nine, you know, fifty-five to fifty-eight, and also just what patterns is, is basically right now, you know, we're in a time where media is just so readily accessible. At any time I can go and I can watch the thing that was on TV five years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, or whatever. In in this era of television. It's this ephemeral media. It's this thing where, uh, you know, they they have this huge production. It's all filmed live. Um, it's basically like having a stage in your living room. And it's patterns is so. So I'll, I'll say one other thing is just for people who aren't familiar with patterns. It's the story of uh, it's, it's a workplace drama um, where you have uh, sort of the the old vice president who is starting to become a little more 
irrelevant and is starting to have health problems. And this this new guy comes in uh, who's who's just looking at kind of getting his career and he's interested in building relationships. And and the boss at this company is is truly focused on efficiency and creating a, a very hardlined work environment. And it's this uh, really heartbreaking story about the patterns of this company, the patterns of of management, understanding where your career trajectory will be in the beginning and the end of your career, things like that. Um, and it it comes out, it's filmed live. As you say, it's it's the greatest thing that's ever been on television. And it's so popular that they run it again. And people think like, oh, cool, they ran it again. No, no, they had to have the entire production happen a second time. They need all the camera operators and all the actors and all the stage crew. They have to rebuild the set. I mean, this is not something where when you say like, oh, we did a rerun, we're watching an episode of friends six months later. I mean, this is something where it is a huge scale production because the public has this outcry for this play that, that it just really seeped into their souls a little bit. Yeah. It was the first time that that had ever happened uh, in this, in this way anyway, that, that, yeah, you had to get the entire crew back together again to redo the performance. And it was about, you know, three or four months later, uh, because for, by popular demand. I mean, after the Jack Gould review, uh, other critics picked up on it and they basically said, you know, you've got to redo this because anybody who missed it needs to see it. And, and so it was really by popular demand that they, they repeated it. It's pretty amazing. It's it's awesome, and and, and thanks. Thankfully, uh, there was some technology in place that allowed them to film the broadcasts so they could show it on the other coast a few hours later. Um, and occasionally, those pop up on YouTube, or, or you can rent them. Criterion has released uh, a collection of that. But if you're if you're a Rod Serling fan, and and patterns is not something that's in your periphery. I mean, it's just so it's such a great piece to watch because you can really see just how much he's honing dialogue as he's he's growing, and just that that dialogue efficiency starts to seep into the things that we know and love when we're watching Twilight Zone episodes and things like that. Yeah, some brilliant dialogue, and, and that was always Rod's forte was dialogue, and and you see some of his best work in Patterns. It's you know the I think I quote from the the ending of Patterns in my book, and I got to tell you when I was yeah when I was just kind of uh, typing that when I was just I was just you know re recreating the dialogue in that last scene, I the hairs on my arm started standing up because it's just uh, it's just brilliant dialogue between Staples, who was played by. Uh, uh, Richard Kiley and Everett Sloan, uh, the, the the manager, the, they're they're back and forth there at the end, where you just they're they're two civilized people who want to be at each other's throats. They're they're ready they're ready to punch each other out, but too civilized to do that. And it's like everything is seething beneath the surface, and uh, it's just uh, I just love the the dialogue at the end of that show. Yeah, there's a reference to uh, the uh, one previous character has made a reference that he he has daydreams about punching the boss in the jaw, essentially. And then the new guy is 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 having this this argument with the boss. And he says, you know, there's one thing I'd like to keep and this. It's this goal of punching you. And the boss's comment is, you know, like, I'll write it into the contract. I mean, it's <laughs> just it. I think the thing the other thing that I really appreciate about because that was a, a craft uh play it wasn't a playhouse 90 but just also the fact that um work of that high intellectual level is what people were craving in 1955 i mean that's what they were responding to and he's tackling these universal themes that you know we see constantly um regurgitated in modern media but i don't necessarily feel that it has the same soul that uh, a piece like patterns does yeah i, I don't know i don't know I, I can't comment on that i can tell you that at the time, I think, again, it's it's kind of along the lines of, you know, they were setting the rules as they went. And this was just this was just Rod Serling. He wasn't necessarily even thinking that this is what the audience wants. They want, you know, the height. This is just what I'm going to write. This is what I'm going to give you. You're going to take what I give you, you know. Um, so um, so he was writing high quality stuff and take it or leave it, you know, and and they took it. In this case, they, they responded to it in a, you know, in a massive way. Yeah, it's awesome, and uh, I think we should uh, let's let's talk about uh, Requiem for a Heavy Weight a little bit too, because Pattern comes out, uh, Patterns comes out, he ends up with this massive success, and then for a, a while is concerned that he'll never reach that again. Uh, 
And then he manages to write Requiem for a Heavyweight, which once again comes back to his boxing background, his obsolete man theme. Uh, and, it, and it takes the world by storm again with a successful Playhouse 90 and eventually a successful feature film. Yeah, the period between Patterns and Requiem is a very um, interesting period in Rod Sterling's career, because, as you said, yeah, Rod was uh, he was he was at the top of the heap at that point with Patterns, and he just had this drive to to equal or exceed the success of patterns he just he felt like every script that came out he wanted that's what he was shooting for and every script that didn't make it to that level he he he, as to what he would say is i bled a little you know he would he would bleed he would bleed over bad reviews he would he would um you know he would bleed over criticism you know and the thing that i would say and I, i think i do say in the book is that he wrote a lot of really good stuff after pad between patterns and Room for heavyweight in particular the rack uh he wrote a show a show called the rack for us the united states steel hour and it was um i think it's one of his best scripts period the performance of it on us steel was not great uh it was it's a very good show but it wasn't quite as powerful. It didn't come off, as they say. Um, it wasn't quite as powerful as the script was. But the script is one of Rod's best. It's about a, a POW, a former POW who comes back uh, from the war and is tried for treason, basically. He was tried for um, giving away secrets while he was a POW and while he was being tortured. And it's a, it's a powerful, powerful show. And, and Rod's script is brilliant. Um, so that's one, but he wrote a lot of good stuff in between patterns and requiem, but none of them got that critical, critical acceptance, critical response that patterns had gotten until requiem and requiem was almost two years later. It's about a year and 10 months later and requiem, if anything, got even better reviews than patterns did. So requiem solidified Rod Serling's status as the number one television writer. Requiem swept the Emmy Awards for best director, best writer, best acting. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it's a, fir- it was the first 90 minute original teleplay for television, which is a big deal. Um, it was the second episode of Playhouse 90. Rod wrote the first episode, which was uh, Forbidden Area that I mentioned, but that was based on a novel. So this was the first original 90 minute teleplay for television. And it was it's a it's Rod, it was Rod's favorite of all of his work. I think that's safe to say. And it's his it's his masterpiece. It really is. Uh, it was it's a great show. And it got and it got tremendous reviews afterward. Yeah. So uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight, the story of a, a boxer who was going to be the heavyweight champion of the world, uh, ends up having a fight where uh, he he is told that if he fights again, he has the chance of going blind. Um, and at the same time, his manager is in some pretty crippling financial debt. And it's about the uh, the relationships that they have and and sort of finding a new life for yourself after the thing you think you were born for is no longer feasible. It's it, it it runs Playhouse 90 with uh, Jack Palance uh, as McClintock. Right. Uh, and then uh, comes out uh, as a feature film with Anthony Quinn, uh, which both are remarkable. And uh, we talked a little bit before the broadcast uh, have different endings, which is really interesting, uh, both written by Rod, both conveying sort of different themes and different ideas. Yeah, the the television production has a bit more of a a uh, hopeful ending, a happy ending, uh, not even a bit more, a lot more. Uh, the, the ending of the television production uh, during the, you know, during the, the, the show, Jack Palance uh, has this uh, relationship with a, a counselor and she suggests that maybe, you know, uh, he, she has a, a camp for kids that he could go to and maybe, maybe he could do something there. And the ending is he gets on a train to go, uh, well, he's going back home to Kennesaw, uh, Kennesaw, Tennessee, or I forget where exactly he's from. But, but, um, and he meets a kid on the train, and the kid's asking him about boxing, and he starts giving him some boxing tips. And you just get this little, just this little snippet, this little picture of, okay, yeah, you know what, this guy has something else. He, he, there's something else this guy can do. He has some strengths besides being in the ring. Maybe he, he does have a rapport with the kid, and he can communicate. Maybe he can teach. 
And so maybe he can teach boxing and that's the, the happy ending that he does have a future after boxing. And, and as we were talking before the, uh, before the broadcast, I think, uh, you know, Rod or, or during actually, you know, Rod, when he first went to college, yeah, he was going to be a physical education teacher. He just, I think he had this idea that he wanted to work with kids. And so, yeah, so that was a bit autobiographical as well, that he was going to, that Mountain McClintock could be a, a, a gym teacher essentially. And uh, in the movie version, we get kind of the opposite where at the end, the t- both the TV version and the movie version have this piece where the manager wants to turn him into a wrestler because to make up this, the financial debt that he's in, he's going to turn him into a ridiculous wrestler and he's going to put a costume on him and everything. And in the TV version, he rejects that. In the movie version, he says, all right, you know, I got to save my, he's saving them this manager's life, really, you know, literally. And he says, okay. And he puts on the costume and the movie ends where he's given up his dignity completely and he's going to be a wrestler uh, to save his manager's life. And it's a much darker ending. And and both of them have their, have their merits, you know, and Rod was, Rod was uh, in charge of both of them. You know, he did write both of them and I think he believed in both of them, but he just decided to go a different way in the, in the movie version. Yeah. And it's just really interesting because he doesn't do that in patterns. I mean, there's some uh, with the, the feature film version uh, he, if anything, he just finds better ways to, uh, dig into your emotional, uh, just scarred heart as you're watching the piece. Uh, you know he's got more time to to work with it, which is which I think is kind of interesting. The uh, I want to make sure that we have some time to talk about some of the other initiatives that you worked in, but we can't leave this conversation without talking about the Twilight Zone. I hear that uh, that's one that people the people have watched. Uh, so it, you know, he's working on these these uh, different Playhouse ninety uh, pieces, these Golden Age of Television teleplays, and is really just becomes a master of creating memorable characters. I mean, just like I, you can't go anywhere without thinking about some character or finding some analogy with something that he's created out, you know, out in the world. And he's, he's always handling these universal themes. Um, but he is getting, he's growing more and more frustrated with the pushback that he gets from, uh, people want to say the censors, but it, it's, it's more people just being mindful of who is financing the, the pieces that you're doing. Uh, and he, he attains the, the tagline of television's angry young man because he's always fighting back but he'd always wanted to do a science fiction show uh and creates creates the twilight zone um you know you had talked about how you didn't you don't necessarily know what your first uh memory of the twilight zone is but do you what when did you really just develop a complete passion and love for the twilight zone I guess it would be like I said earlier about when when the when Mark Zickrey's Twilight Zone Companion came out. I mean, I had developed the love for it before then, uh, but then that almost kind of like gave me uh, gave me the roadmap of my own fandom. You know, it just kind of it was it, it just uh, it exploded things in different you know a million different directions. Um, but by that point, I already was a, a huge fan. I was already recording the shows on VHS and, and everything. I, I give you my, you know, this will sound like it's from another century. Well, it is from another century. <laughs> I was going to say it's from another century. It is. But it was, it's going to sound like it's from the 1800s or something when people, if people listen to it. But I can remember there was a Twilight Zone marathon on UHF. Now, people don't even know what UHF is. But UHF was a whole other, you know, band of, of television stations and I can remember watching this marathon on UHF on my little black and white TV in my backyard. You know, why in my backyard? Because the, I could get the signal better in my backyard outside than I could inside. So I took my TV out into the backyard with the rabbit ears and everything. And I was watching a Twilight Zone marathon on UHF. This had to be 1979 or something, 1980. So, so, uh, so I was already a fanatic, you know, before Mort Zickrey's uh, companion came out. Um, but yeah, there was just, you know, as I said, it, it, I can tell you it was, it was pretty much instantaneous. There was, there was Rod. There was the look of Rod, the sound of Rod, the way he would introduce the shows. The black and white is just in in you know it's it's uh, so important to the to the to the to the way it affects you. Black and white is just to me is uh, you can't separate Twilight Zone from black and white. And you know there was something about the language of the show. You know there and you know I wouldn't learn the word for it until much later. But it was literary. It was a literary show. It was you know the people I I noticed very early on that the people on this show talk in ways that they don't talk on other television shows. You know they just the language they used was different and it was evocative and it was poetic sometimes and it was just there was something about it and it 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 
it uh, honored your intelligence. You know, it's it, it really did. And as a kid, I, I noticed that as a kid, I said, you know, they're talking. He's talking to me like I like I can understand this. You know, I can. You know, I'm not an idiot, you know, and 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 that really just um, that did something for me. And, and so, yeah, so that all put it all together with these amazing twist endings and everything else. And you have to me the greatest television series that's ever been produced. And I am right there with you, Nick. Whenever people talk about like anybody, anybody ever throws anything into the ring for this is the best TV show ever. I'm like, I'm sorry, but we need to we need to stash this conversation because the Twilight Zone clearly wins. Uh, but, you know, the thing that I was thinking about is, is that, you know, you watch those episodes and some of them feel a little dated or whatever. But there's this this modernization to them whenever I watch where I'm just like, this could have been made as a short film yesterday. I mean, the, the cinematic language is so strong. The script writing is so strong. Um, you know, everybody has their comment of like, well, not every episode's great. I'm like, well, that's cool. Great. The show ran for five seasons, 156 episodes. 92 of them are written by one guy from Binghamton. Rod Sterling writes 92 of these scripts. Uh, and the batting average is just so high. I mean, it even even the worst episode of The Twilight Zone is still better than some of the best episodes of other TV shows that are competing with it at the time. Yeah, and uh, and that batting average you can talk about is all it can be also be translated to Rod Serling's batting average overall too, because again, you you know talk about the most prolific writer in television history writing almost two hundred and fifty scripts that were produced, and it's amazing how many of them are good. You know, anybody can write two hundred and fifty scripts that are bad. You know, um, and Rod wrote some bad scripts. Let's not be let's not uh, you know uh, you know make it sound like everything was great. Rod wrote a lot of bad stuff, including some bad Twilight Zone episodes. But it's amazing how many of the scripts that he wrote were not only good, but great. And yeah, the Twilight Zone, uh, you know, Rod, Rod's famous quote about the quality of the Twilight Zone was that, you know, a third of them were shows that I'd really be proud of. A third of them were passable and a third of them were dogs. And in my book, I think I point out that he I think he was way off on th a third of them being dogs. There are no way that there are 50 dogs in the Twilight Zone. There are maybe 20, maybe, but not 50. So so Rod, again, was being way too hard on himself. Um, but yeah, so the, the batting average is, is great. And and as you mentioned, the the quality of the show is just, you know, people always ask the, the question that's been asked for you know 40 years now probably is why is the twilight zone endured why do people still care about it why is it still on the air and one of the simple answers is just that it was so good it was just good it the the, the cinematography was so good the acting was so good the writing was so good it you know and quality endures quality lasts so regardless of what you know some people might actually might say quality does endure so and that's one of the reasons that twilight zone endured when you watch these shows especially watch them on blu-ray and they're beautiful. They just look beautiful. They they look, as you said, they look like they could have been filmed yesterday. And um, so, yeah, the Twilight Zone is immortal. It's going it's going to last long, long past uh, our lives for sure. Yeah. And I think the other thing, too, is uh, a lot of people don't understand the condensed time frames for which they were filmed. in. I mean, a lot of them were filmed. Is it like three days or so? Yeah. Yeah. Three days. They would they would do these shows in three days. Rod would probably write them in two days. A lot of times you really would write these shows in 24, 48 hours. And uh, yeah. And not only condensed time frame of the production, but how about the condensed time frame of the story itself? I mean, 24 minutes. Rod Serling was a master at creating fully developed characters and a fully developed story in that 24 minute time frame. And sometimes it's amazing. Uh, well, it's, it's often amazing. It's, you know, in the book, I, um, I point out one particular episode called uh, <laughs> The Silence, uh, a great episode about a guy, uh, the a, a gentleman's club where the two two members get into an argument about, you know, that one says you can't stay silent for a year and they put him into a soundproof booth and he can't stay and he has to stay silent for a year. Well, you know, when I was writing the book, I, I, I didn't you know say, oh, I'm going to write a lot about the silence. It was I mean, I love the episode, but it wasn't like it was my favorite, but it just turned out that I found that there was so much to say about the way Rod Sterling wrote the silence in that in that sense of here's a way he created this the characterization in an episode comes in the first two minutes the first two minutes you, you understand exactly what those who those characters are exactly what their conflict is and it's 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 such it's a it's a master class in in not wasting a word you're not wasting any any time whatsoever. And a lot of times in the Twilight Zone, some of that will come in, you know, almost cheating. You can get that in the introduction. Rod Stone's introduction, he can lay it out for you. And that's to some extent cheating. In this episode, that's not it. In this episode, it's in the dialogue. 
and it's so perfectly written. It's just everything that these guys say moves that characterization along. And yeah, if there's any, if there, anybody asked me, you know, for a, you know, how to write guide from the Twilight Zone, that's the episode I would give them. And it's not necessarily my favorite episode, but that episode is, is a lesson. It's a masterclass in how to do that. Yeah, that one always gives me the chills. By the end of that episode, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm not sure I'd sacrifice that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a double twist ending that that episode. Oh, so good. Well, I want to. Um, I, I, the other thing that I think is really interesting about the Twilight Zone, and obviously, I'm an upstate New Yorker, so I'm I take a lot of pride in uh in, in just anything that is inherently upstate New York. But uh, Rod Serling. I wish he he loved Syracuse as much as he loved Binghamton, New York. Uh, so, but, you know, I've got both of my blood, so I guess it's okay. Uh, but he loved Binghamton to the extent where, um, you know, there, there are stories about uh, him later on in his life just uh, disappearing for a day and just going and walking around his, his old neighborhood and, and things like that. But in the Twilight Zone, he was never afraid to bring the East coast to the West coast, you know, he's filming these, these episodes and is always putting in references to, you know, Oh, the bustle stop in Cortland, or, uh, you know, this is, this is clearly us recreating Binghamton, uh, most notably in a lot of people's favorite episode, which is walking distance. Um, where, uh, actually Nick, I'll have you do that. Do you mind giving just a quick synopsis of what walking distance is about? Sure, it probably is my favorite episode. So, it, yeah, it, Walking Distance is Rod Sterling's really archetypal character of the of the New York City executive who was burned out. He's just had enough of the rat race, and he just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. He says, "You know, I had to get out of my office, or I was going to jump out the window." And he drives his car. He drives into basically to his old hometown, and uh, he visits his old hometown, Homewood, and he realizes he has actually gone back in time. And he was able to visit himself. He was able to see himself as a young boy and, and visit his parents, see his parents who have died, you know, several years earlier. And you know, the the first thing you, you notice is there's no device for the for him going back in time. It's not like there was some big thing that had to happen or some time machine or anything. He just goes back in time. And again, that's a, br- a brilliant uh, device that the Twilight Zone was able to use. That Rod Stone just said, "Go with me." Rod Sterling just said, you know, listen, I'm not going to explain this to you. Just go with me. He's back in time. That's it. So he's back in time and he gets to visit his old hometown. And it is a stand in for Binghamton without a doubt. Uh, Rod Sterling. Yeah, he longed to go back to his childhood. That's I mean, he said it. He said it plenty of times. So this isn't me putting words in his mouth. And especially when he got back from the war, when Rod Sterling came back from the war, he went back to Binghamton. And when he went back to Binghamton, his his father died while he was in the war. So he never even got to go to his father's funeral and I never got to really say goodbye to his father. And so he comes back to Binghamton. And after his father died, his mother moved in with uh, an aunt in Schenectady. So his roots were gone. He got to Binghamton and nothing was there. He, he had no. And, you know, there's another very autobiographical episode of Night Gallery called The Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar. And in that episode, and, you know, when he was describing that episode, he said, you know, there was one night where he's walking through Binghamton and even the old uh, the restaurant, you know, uh, that he used to go to with his ball team was gone. They were tearing it down. And he just felt like they're taking away all of my roots. They're taking away everything. Everything's gone. And that's that really inspired walking distance, this melancholy of you know, going back and being able to just slow down, get back on the carousel, have some uh, cotton candy, listen to the band concert. And uh, it's a beautifully written episode. It's it's to me, it's the Twilight Zone's gold standard. And uh, it's yeah, it's it's all about Rod's longing to go back. And it's amazing, too, just, in the uh, you know, like simple things like the uh, one of the culminating moments, of the episode takes place on a carousel. And if you've never been to Binghamton, New York, it's it's the carousel capital of the world. There are more carousels in Binghamton than anywhere else. And you can go and you can ride them all and get a nice little pin that says that you did it. Uh, but he's he just is just unabashedly in love with Binghamton and putting it on screen as many times as he can. Um, and I just get I, I I just love that, too, just in the sense that he um knows that these are the things that he can offer uh you know his his childhood his memory his family uh even though he's not back in binghamton he's back you know in in los angeles filming yeah that was yeah he could pay tribute for sure and and he can indulge he can indulge he can indulge himself he can indulge that nostalgia and indulge that that longing for his youth and and put it out there and that's something that great writers do and rod was one of them it's great. I want to um, just because 
we need some of his words here in the closing narration of walking of walking distance it says martin sloan age 36 vice president in charge of media successful in most things but not in the one effort that all men try at some time in their lives trying to go home again and also like all men perhaps there'll be an occasion maybe a summer night sometime when he'll look up from what he's doing and listen to the distant uh, the distant music of a calliope and hear the voices and the laughter of the people and the places of his past. And perhaps across his mind, there'll flit a little errant wish that a man might not have to become old, never outgrow the parks and the merry-go-rounds of his youth. And he'll smile then too, because he'll know it is just an errant wish, some wisp of memory, not too, not too important really, some laughing ghosts that cross a man's mind that's a part of the twilight zone. It's beautiful. It's, 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 po it's poetry. It, and I think that, you know, part like a part of the endearing just like love of the show, I think, is the fact that it's got all the structures that make it instantly intoxicating. You are watching an episode and even if the sound's off, who's this random guy talking at me who clearly shouldn't be in this world? Uh, and then some story happens. And as you start to to deconstruct, you're realizing that there's just so much love and passion that's thrown into every episode. Um, and speaking of that love and passion, uh, Nick, you are the president of the Rod Sterling Memorial Foundation, um, and you guys are just doing such a great job of ensuring that uh, the spirit of Rod Serling is uh, is alive and well. You guys just had a, a successful Kickstarter to uh, put together a monument and a statue in in Binghamton. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is uh, this was a goal of the foundations for a long time. This was something we really wanted to get done. And thanks to uh, our you know fan base, for a lack of a better term, um, we were able to do it. We had a Kickstarter that was able to raise the funds and or raise the balance of the funds. We got a really nice uh, grant from New York State, thanks to Assemblywoman Donna Lopardo, who was able, was instrumental in helping us get that grant. So between the grant and the Kickstarter funds, we were able to get a statue of Rod Serling that we are going to unveil in Binghamton's Recreation Park sometime next year. I wish I had a date for you, but I don't. In fact, I may have a date within the next couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm hoping by really by the end of the month to have a, a or at least a, a month you know, to say, okay, it's going to be in this month of, of 2024. And, uh, you know, 2024 will be Rod's 100th birthday, and it'll also be the 65th anniversary of the Twilight Zone's debut. So uh, we're planning a, a huge celebration uh, around the unveiling of the statue. And it's, again, it's something that we've wanted to do for a long time, because as you said earlier, you walk around Binghamton and you do see uh, signs of Rod Serling. You see there's a marker outside of his high school that, you know, that, uh, you know, says that, you know, he was part of the graduating class in 1942. And, um, you know, you see there's, there's that carousel with a marker in the bandstand says an inspiration for walking distance, but there's nothing as significant as a statue. Uh, this is going to be a, a six foot tall statue plus a base of uh, 18 inches plus a doorway behind him that's that says you know you unlock the store with the key of imagination around the around the door frame and it's going to be a, a really really significant monument uh, to Rod Sterling just to remind to remind people that Rod Sterling called Binghamton home that this was you know this was the the home of one of the 20th century's great writers and so we are really really proud of it I can't wait to be able to unveil it and have it to be something that people from all over the world can come to come and see it's going to be amazing. And I, uh, if, if people are interested in, uh, in, in helping out, are you guys still looking for resources? Is there other places where they can, they can benefit? Always. Yes. If you just go to rodsterling.com, nice and easy to remember rodsterling.com and you'll see join us. And, and when you click on the join us uh, button, you can donate. And, uh, the, the statue, you know, we, the, the Kickstarter funds, you know, we're able to get us the balance of the statue and some of the ancillary stuff like the groundwork and things like that. But we are as we go along, we're finding, oh, of course, more and more expenses are cropping up. So. So, yeah, if you can help us, just just give a donation. And in fact, if you donate through the website, you could even put. Uh, a little note saying this is, you know, for the statue for Rod Sterling, uh, Rod Sterling Monument, and we'll know the earmark it towards the actual expenses for the statue. And uh, that would uh, greatly help. Yeah. And I want to just interject and say that, um, you know, I, I've been involved with a lot of not-for-profits and I've, I've seen a lot of the ways in which people handle the resources that they're given. Um, and I, I want to just give you guys a lot of credit because I see the way you handle yourselves. I see the way in which you, you operate Serling Fest. I see just the, the consistency with 
which you make rational and smart decisions. There's there's no, uh, you know, under promising or over promising and, and not delivering on anything. I've just I've seen that year in and year out. It's been a slow growth. And I just want to reassure people at home that the donations that you make, if if you are interested and if you are able, uh, are used in a way that is truly beneficial to keeping uh, the memory and the soul of, of Rod Serling alive, uh, not just now, but for future generations. It's not money that is just going to superfluously be spent on, on, on something. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks. It's it's you know we as you as you said it's it's about keeping the spirit of Rod Serling alive. So we are not you know we're not a fan club. We're not you know this isn't about you know about Twilight's own stuff. You know it's about really is about Rod Serling as a writer, as a humanitarian, as a teacher. It's about reminding people of what he stood for, and we do that every every chance we get. In fact, every Serling Fest that we do, generally we do them once a year. We make a concerted effort not to just. It's not just about the Twilight Zone. It's about Rod Serling's life, his contributions to the arts uh, in general, and the things that he believed in. And uh, we think that that's that's what how Rod would have wanted it. Absolutely, and I I just love the. You know, as we've, we've said it, how many times in this interview, 250 produced scripts. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's important that we shed light on all of that work, because I think it, it really does show the the building to the, the, you know, the pinnacle of the Twilight Zone. Uh, it's not just that piece. Um, and you guys have uh, on uh, August 26th from 10 a.m. to 4, uh, you guys are doing Sterling Fest 2023, which is going to be held uh, virtually this year, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, we generally we do. We've had every other Sterling Fest in person except for one during the pandemic when we went virtually, and and it was a huge success the virtual one. So we're not so uh, worried about it this year. So we are going to do another virtual one, one this year. And the only reason we're doing it virtual this year is again is because we put so much effort and time into the, the statue project, and we're trying to get next year's in person ready. We said you know let's just back off and do it virtually this year, and uh, it'll be a little bit easier for us. So it's August twenty sixth. We're going to be doing virtual. Uh, via a zoom meeting that will that will stream to our facebook page so if people just go to facebook uh and look up rod Serling memorial foundation you'll find us and, and it'll be there from 10 a.m to 4 p.m uh so far i can tell you that uh we have guests including uh frank spotnitz who is a producer uh, co-producer and writer for the x-files who's a huge Serling fan i'm looking forward to to speaking with him um i mentioned donna lapardo recent uh, er- earlier uh she's an assemblywoman who is also a huge twilight zone fan and i thought it'd be good to talk to her and get her perspective on honoring rod Serling in the binghamton area and what her role was in getting us this statue uh, done, so she'll be with us. Uh, Jim Benson and Scott Skelton will be with us. They are the co-authors of Rod's, Rod Stern's Night Gallery and After Hours Tour, and they just recently did a new version of that book, which is tremendous. So uh, they're going to be with us, and they are going to be interviewed by Mark DeWizziak, who is the author of Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone, uh, as well as uh, the new uh, Edgar Allan Poe biography uh, that has been uh, tremendously uh, well re- well reviewed. Uh, he's going to be interviewing them, and he's also going to be doing a presentation. We are going to be sharing a very, very rare interview with Buck Houghton, the producer of The Twilight Zone, uh, from the, for the first three seasons. Uh, Buck Houghton is no longer with us. This is an interview that was done with him several years ago by one of our board members, Gordon Webb. And uh, I had just seen it for the first time yesterday, so I'm sure nobody else has seen it. And so this will be brand new for people, so we're going to share that. And there will also be a, uh, a presentation by Tony Alberella about the making of the As, T- as Timeless as Infinity books, which is the Rod Sterling script books that were released. Uh, he edited all of those, and it's going to be about his whole process in putting together those scripts. So uh, our schedule is pretty much pretty much full. And again, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern, you know, Eastern Standard Time, Eastern Daylight Time, and it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm really excited. I uh, I attended in person in 2018, and my mind was blown uh, just by the just the range of Serling academics that are out there. You know, you have some who are just focused on his wartime. You know, you're you do a really good job of focusing on all of his his script writing and his in his writing career. You have Anne Serling, who you know obviously is is writing about her dad and you know what it what it was like to to grow up there. Uh, and then I really enjoyed the, uh, the, the pandemic, uh, Sterling Fest. I remember tuning in while I was driving and it was the, uh, the interview with all the, the kids of the twilight zone where you had Charles Beaumont's son and Richard Christian Matheson and, and Serling, uh, just kind of talking about, you know, their parents and how, 
life was like while they were writing that show, which was great. Uh, so if anybody is is interested in uh, learning more about Serling, uh, light years ahead of what this conversation is going to offer you, I strongly encourage checking out Serling Fest. Uh, Nick, I, I want to make sure I'm mindful of your time. I really appreciate you being here. Is there anything else that you would like to chime in about? Anything on your mind? Anything that you'd like to make space for? No, just uh, really just uh, to thank everybody who who contributed to the Kickstarter again. Uh, this was uh, we tried a Kickstarter once before a year earlier and it came up short. And uh, but the, but the response was tremendous. I mean, we had so much so much positive response to it. We just didn't quite meet our monetary goal. And so this time people really uh, supported it, shared it, donated talked about it you know uh so so i want to thank everybody who did that um because again this was a big deal to us to get something that's permanent that's a permanent you know monument to rod serling in binghamton and we're finally going to get it done so keep uh you know keep posted to rodserling.com or to our facebook page so you know when we're going to do that unveiling next year because we really want to make this a gigantic celebration uh in binghamton yeah, it's going to be amazing. And uh, Nick, I have a feeling you'll be back on the podcast to talk about that when we uh, we get to that point. I would love to. I would love to be back with you, Ryan. It'd be great. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for beaming in, beaming in. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that episode half as much as I enjoyed having it. It's always a pleasure to be able to find time to nerd out about a writer that has meant so much to both of us. Nick and I have spent a lot of time thinking about Rod Serling's work, thinking about the impact it has on the current climates that we live in. And it's just always nice to be able to take a step back and see the fact that we're not in these studies alone. If you are somebody who is interested in revisiting some of the material that we discussed in the show, all Twilight Zone episodes are available on Freebie right now, which is an app owned by Amazon. If you have an Amazon account or if you download the Freebie app on Roku, Fire Stick, anything like that, you can watch Twilight Zone episodes for free with commercials. Uh, and this is true as of August 2023. Additionally, we talk about Playhouse 90. We talk about the craft productions. Occasionally, those do pop up on YouTube. So if you're interested in seeing Requiem for a Heavyweight, if you're interested in seeing The Comedian, last I checked, you could go through and see some of those on YouTube. It takes a little bit of research and a little bit of uh, timing and patience, but you're able to go through and see these pieces of 1950s television that truly put a mark on the world and were the precursor to the Twilight Zone, which is the thing that I think most of us are obsessed with. We'll be coming back to you in two weeks, in another 14 days, it won't be 30 years, I promise, with Dave Foreman. Dave is the food host of the TV show Played at Pittsburgh. He's a food blogger, and we're going to be talking about food as a hobby, the idea that maybe if we spend some time thinking about what we ingest, we can turn into something more than just uh, an after-dinner special. So tune in August 30th on all your favorite podcast uh, deployment services. Until then, please make some space for conversations because you might learn something. <laughs>